The Bankless State of the Nations are brought to you by Wiron. Wiron is DeFi's first self-building community-run project, which I just get really, really excited about. Wiron is a system that seeks out yield in DeFi, and it does that in a number of different ways. Well, a very aggressive way is with the vaults, where you can deposit your preferred asset of choice, and different DeFi experts will come in and generate a strategy for what to do with your deposited token, right? And so it'll go find ways to get yield in that deposited token in DeFi. For those who want to just earn yield on their stable coins, the earn system is for you, where you can deposit your preferred stable coin and Wiron will go and figure out which money market on DeFi and DeFi is producing the best interest rate, whether it's DYDX, it's Compound or Aave. It, it looks around DeFi to see where the yield is coming from and it directs stable coins automatically so you don't have to. Check them out at yearn.finance to get started and also check out the stats page to see what other people are doing as well. We're also brought to you by Monolith. Monolith is your cool new DeFi account, your DeFi savings account, your DeFi checking account. Except the cool thing about the Monolith DeFi account is that it gets software updates, right? You actually get to increase the usefulness of this over time. So here are some of the features. Monolith is a smart contract wallet with a lot of the features that you would expect if you've come to know DeFi and what it is, you can you can add money to it. You can put that money to work uh, in Compound and, and accessing yield. Uh, but you can and you can also swap through Uniswap. What was cool with Monolith is that they will send you a very sexy Monolith Visa card that connects to your smart Monolith smart contract wallet on Ethereum. So it's a really awesome tool to live a bankless life with a, a, a savings account that gets software updates. So this is, this is something that you're never gonna find out in the real world, but you can still do real world things with you know real money in, like buy your groceries. So that's just fantastic. Coming soon to Monolith, actually already here to Monolith, is now you can buy die and get it sent to your wallet directly, right? So it's also being an on-ramp. So you don't have to go through your centralized exchange like Coinbase or Gemini or wherever. You can just go straight from your bank account right into your Monolith checking account smart contract wallet. So check them out at monolith.xyz. All right. Welcome everyone to State of the Nation. Thanks for joining us. This is State of the Nation, episode number 19. If you are new to State of the Nation, David and I uh, do a couple of things. First, we talk about what's happening generally in crypto. Then we try to relate it to the big picture stuff that you hear about in the podcast and you read in the newsletter. And finally, we try to drop some hot insights and action items for you. Of course, this comes out live Tuesday on YouTube, and you can watch it there. You can also get it on the podcast stream if you're an audio-only type of person. We release it in both places for you. David, how are you doing today? Absolutely fantastic. There is always, as as always, so much to talk about. The, the space continues to move at a mile a minute, and so we are going to get into some of the things that are on our minds in today's State of the Nation. Yeah, David. So there's three things we're going to dive into. Um, the first is MetaMask. Mm -hmm. So MetaMask recently hit this massive milestone, over a million uh, monthly active users. And we've brought Jacob Cantel on to talk about it. He's from product at MetaMask. That's going to be pretty exciting. What else are we doing, David? Uh, we are going to talk about the Bankless Q3 token report, which, uh, like, like I've been saying, uh, Q3 it looks like it looks different from all the other Qs, and so we're getting the <laughs> author himself, Lucas, onto the State of the Nation after Jacob to talk about the Q3 token report, and then yeah, after this is... that, hey, go ahead. 
Oh, yeah, I was going to say this is a token report that we uh, put together in-house. So mm. um, Lucas Campbell is a fantastic editor and analyst on the Bankless team. He puts this token report uh, together once per quarter, and there are some fantastic insights there that we'll get to a bit later in the show. And what's the last thing, David? Yeah, last thing is kind of what I was alluding to is, and what I wrote in uh, this week's Market Monday is this like gradually then suddenly idea of crypto adoption, right? First, it happens slowly. First, progress seems to take forever. And then all of a sudden, like adoption arrives, right? And we're <laughs> yes. like, we're there, right? And so there's this very like, you know, mentality of this is going to take forever. And then all of a sudden it's here. And I, in, in my mind, on the gradually then suddenly timeline, we're at the then, right? We're past this, the gradually part. We're not at the suddenly part, we're at the then. And that's kind of what it feels like. Yeah, absolutely, totally agree. All right, can't wait to dig into that. We should also talk about some of the things that are going on in the Bankless Nation. David, we just dropped this epic two hour long mm -hmm. episode with Vitalik on Ethereum and ETH2. And that really struck at like, not, not, not so much the when ETH or the how ETH, but the why ETH. Mm -hmm. What were your takeaways from that? Yeah, yeah. My, my, my big takeaways is that some of the very original OG design decisions that uh, were made around Ethereum and specifically Ethereum 2.0 were fundamentally, fundamentally the correct choices. Like no matter what blockchain, no matter what ecosystem, like there were some some design choices that are going to be correct, like no matter what. And that's kind of the, the subject matter, the through line of that particular podcast with Vitalik. Like, why are we so committed to proof of stake? Why are we so committed to sharding? Like, why didn't we pick a different like version of, of uh, consensus mechanisms or, you know, blockchain scale scalability? And then on the other, on the flip side of things, a lot of things have happened in Ethereum that, uh, you know, no one could have guessed back in 2015 when Ethereum was really being like kind of architected or designed in the first place. And that's stuff like rollups and EIP 1559. So to me, the, the, my big takeaways was that, you know, there, there, there were some choices that we knew were correct at the very beginning. And there were other choices that we, you know, that we discovered through R&D that came out in the last five years. And what Ethereum 2.0 is looking like it's turning into is like a, an elegant combination of, you know, very early primitives that we had strong convictions of choosing along with some of the stuff that we are indeed along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And a perfect follow-up, I think, to that Vitalik episode that, that sort of spells out the why Ethereum at the high level mm -hmm. is our Ask Me Anything for the Bankless community with Danny Ryan. That's coming up this Thursday. So this Thursday, 12 p.m. Eastern, you can catch it live on YouTube. We'll also be publishing that to the podcast. But that's really an opportunity for the community to ask the more intricate details of uh, Danny Ryan. Like, when is the actual... Uh, ETH2 staking contract going to drop. How about the various client implementation teams? Perfect opportunity to get into ETH2 there. It's it's really become sort of an ETH2 week, I think. Uh, and then finally, David, we've got this new show and uh, we, we put it out every Friday morning. It's called our weekly roll-up show. Um, that's that's really a, a kind of a, another cool way to plug into what's going on to crypto. Mm -hmm. Can you give folks a preview of what that is and why they should catch it? 
Yeah, weekly roll-ups. So this is something that me and Ryan will always plan, plan like seven days, a rough, you know, the up to seven days in advance where like something gets shared on Twitter, something gets shared on Reddit, something gets shared in the Bankless Discord. We grab the link, we stick it in the doc, and then on Thursday, we run through every single link that we grabbed for the prior seven days, right? It's a roll-up, right? And so it's about <laughs> rolling things up into bite-sized chunks so that, you know, if you have a full-time job and like not in the, in the crypto world or you just maybe you were on vacation how do you get how do you sync your node over the last seven days of information especially when information in the crypto world moves so fast so that's what the weekly roll-ups is for we are rolling up a a bundle of packets of information injecting them right into your head yep five topics 25 minutes if you've got 15 minutes you can listen to it on 2x speed and be done (laughs) get crypto downloaded into your brain uh, the last seven days of it in 15 minutes a super cool show. So that's coming Friday mornings, both on the podcast and YouTube. David, let's start with the question I always ask you at the beginning of State of the Nation. What is the state of the nation today, my friend? The state of the nation is drum rolling. We are okay. drum rolling. And once again, this has so many different meetings, meanings to so many different parts of the, the crypto world, right? Uh, you know, Ethereum 2.0 seems to be like, like right there. It seems to be right next door. Uh, we some some people are just waiting for the deposit contract to get announced, uh, and at that point in time, like it's off to the races with getting the the other phases finished and finalized. Meanwhile, in Bitcoin land, like the the conversation around like money printing and MMT and Bitcoin as the asset that's diametrically opposed is really picking up steam, right? Uh, and so there seems to be just a lot of preparation and anticipating excitement around what it seems to be coming around the, the corner. Like, so some things kind of just need to come to pass so we can get them in our rear, rear view mirror. The U.S. election comes to mind. Um, especially then this is kind of using a crypto centric uh, uh, viewpoint of the world, but like some things just need to come to pass and then we can finally get to like the climax that we have been looking for. At least that's what I, I feel like. All right, so this is like the drum roll before the before the charge, yeah. or like the mm-hmm. the drum roll intro before mm-hmm. the band starts playing. That exactly. that kind of yeah. thing. That's exactly. what you mean, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Very cool. All right, well, let's dig into uh, some of that drum rolling in today's episode. But before we do, want to um, talk about our fantastic sponsors that made this state of the nation possible. We already did sponsors. We already did sponsors. Oh, <laughs> sorry, unless David. You want, unless you want to talk about di- Diversify. But well, we- you know what? We should talk about Diversify, mm-hmm. but let's get to that. So um, one sponsor, I probably had that in my notes, um, that we should talk about is uh, Diversify. They actually made the token report possible uh, that we're going to get to a little bit later, but we'll reserve time for them when we get to the token report. Mm-hmm. So my mistake, you know what <laughs> we should be doing instead, is we should be introing Jacob Cantel from MetaMask he is on the product team at MetaMask. Jacob, it's great to see you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Ryan and, and David. I really appreciate you guys. Welcome, welcome. Well, it's awesome to have you here. We are obviously huge fans of MetaMask, both ourselves, of course, um, you know, you know, super users maybe, like use it every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the bankless community I know is composed of a whole bunch of people that are daily active users of MetaMask. But uh, I want to talk about, like, first, this impressive milestone that you guys recently uh, reached, which is you have recently exceeded over a million monthly active users on MetaMask. 
Can you kind of break down what that means for MetaMask and how that data was collected, Jacob? Yeah, so uh, so th thank you so much for saying that, Ryan. Um, so I think a, a lot of people remember uh, just a, a little over a year ago, we very first hit um, a, a million total installs. Um, and, and that was just in general installs. We've been seeing compounding growth in MetaMask, um, especially towards the end of 2019. We saw a lot of growth of users who were in who were using DAOs and who were playing games using using MetaMask. And then uh, this this year, the the DeFi space has also has taken that previous growth and is compounding it again. And really, what you see is when a when a user onboards into one site. Um, they start using one app that compounds and the value for the entire ecosystem uh, grows. So we, we sort of think of ourselves as a universal solution that's serving the entire ecosystem. We're not just a gaming wallet or a DeFi mm -hmm. wallet or a DAO wallet or a payments wallet. Um, we're all of those things and people are compounding into one uh, are joining into one use case and then they're going and discovering value and all these other things. And we think it's the same kind of feedback loop that you get with the internet generally. So, you know, like, uh, there, there's certainly a place for, for niche apps that, that focus on one use case or another, but, um, we think that by, by creating, uh, the most value possible for our users and the most universal and most interoperable solution that we're going to be able to, to do the best for the, for the developer ecosystem and, and for the community itself to, to start discovering all these sites and apps. Um, all, yeah, you were just showing uh, the countries. Um, those are on our, on our mobile growth. Um, I, I just want to point those out. Um, we're seeing a ton of growth, um, especially in, in developing countries where people are using this for payments. They're using it for, for daily survival. They're using it also to try out DeFi and games and dApps. And um, we're, we're super excited to be able to provide those kinds of financial services to people who are who have, his, who have historically been locked out of the traditional financial system. So for people on the podcast who can't see what we're showing on YouTube, the top four countries in terms of MetaMask mobile uh, volume were first the United States, but second, India third, Nigeria, and fourth, the Philippines. Uh, these last three are pretty surprising. And I think maybe that demonstrates what exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, there, there's a, there's huge community growth and there's, um, especially like mobile in a lot of those countries, most people principally are using a, a cell phone. They're not using a desktop computer or something like that. So there's a lot of people who've been waiting for this to, to really, um, to really start joining the ecosystem and our mobile launch has really, really helped with that. Um, it's also worth saying that the mobile app in its first month passed the peak of where the extension was for the, for the whole of 2019. Um, so we're, we're really wow. excited about that growth. Um, this, this chart you're showing here, um, this is showing just the constant month over month growth that we're seeing and the, the compounding value that, that we're, we're seeing for the ecosystem.
It looks a bit like a hockey stick, I'd say, Jacob. <laughs> so, you, uh, right. you, you asked a little bit about how we how we get the data. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're not using on-chain data. I want to be super clear that this, uh, there's not duplicates or something like that. Um, some, some people were like, well, one person, it's probably just people making a bunch of accounts or something. Um, we have an opt-in consensual thing that we call metametrics. If people Google metametrics, you can read in detail about our methodology for how we do analytics. Um, we let the user opt-in uh, to, to analytics directly. We don't, even on the users who opt-in, we don't track IP address. Um, we're very serious about privacy and, and protecting, uh, protecting the privacy of our users. We, we want Web3 to be an alternative to these companies like Facebook and, and Google that are treating people like products and that are treating data as, um, you know, as, as a commodity. And instead we want, you know, we want to, our, our mission is to democratize access to the decentralized web. We want the decentralized web to be available to everyone. We want a, a transactional layer on the internet that allows people to, to consensually have interactions and permissions and privacy and to, to create a, a better internet. And we want to transform the internet and the financial system. Um, so our, our metric solution, we take those who have opted into the metrics and then we also track those who have opted out of metrics. We get one tracking event that tells us that someone has, uh, that someone tracked, that someone opted out, um, and then we don't track them any further. So we have ratios about um, about uh, how many how many total, uh, or what what the percentages of people who are opted into the metrics are, and then we use the data that we have on people who have opted in, and then we project that to the the total number to arrive at a, a real monthly active user number so do, uh, do you know what percentage of people opt in so like what what's the sample size that that is of the whole so um it changes month to month mm -hmm. uh when we very first rolled it out uh the people who opted out was a higher proportion it was like around uh, a little higher than 25 percent um and today it's it's around 18 percent um, and we sort of uh, grouped together uh, the, the last six months of data, six months of data to get a, an accurate number of where we're at today. Um, yeah. So sometimes it's really, historically, it's really hard to like calculate how many people use DeFi, right? Because I, mean, I have... I have at least 10 wallets that, that I've used, you know, in the last like two years in Ethereum, right? However, I think MetaMask, it's actually a little easier to uh, get rid of some of the noise because with MetaMask, it's really just the number of devices you have rather than the number of wallets you have, right? And so inside of MetaMask, I could have 10 wallets, but I would only have one MetaMask, right? And so I, I, my intuition is to assume that some of the data that's coming out of MetaMask is a lot less noisy than like somebody that is looking at like unique addresses that have used Compound or MakerDAO or Uniswap. Is my intuition correct there? That's right. So we're we're we when a person opts into Metametrics, we're just getting one event per all their accounts. Mm -hmm. So these are much more accurate. We're not tracking like, oh, you have ten accounts, so that's ten users. No, that we're we're trying to to do real. Uh, real data and make this available for the ecosystem. And we want to use it to, to benefit the ecosystem.
Cool. Okay, Very cool. J- just one last little nuance on there. So like if the MetaMask was like my first wallet, right? So I've had my MetaMask seed phrase basically since forever. And so I've used, I've actually put that MetaMask seed phrase in, in a couple of my devices. Would you guys count those as one one user or like one still one uh, one user per device? So we don't, we, we will, for privacy reasons, we will not associate a... Um, uh, the consensual tracking cookie with your seed phrase across multiple devices. Okay. So if you did use, you know, two different devices that would count as multiple monthly active users. Um, most people don't do that. Um, although we do see a lot of people that have the extension in mobile. Mm. Um, so there, there is some element of, of duplication there. And okay, so what what were you surprised about when you got some of this data? Was any of this data like shocking? Uh, you know, if uh, if you ask me, like, oh, MetaMask one, you know, one million monthly af- active users coming hot on the heels of DeFi yield farming, I would have been like, well, yeah, that's because of the DeFi yield farming. But you're telling me that there's some extra stuff going on. Um, so was that surprising? Was that was that new information for you guys? And like, and also, how has that kind of change the trajectory or priorities of what you guys are working on at MetaMask internally? So we do, we do get numbers on the dApps that people are using on, in a given month. Um, so we have, we have uh, not, not that an individual is using, but we get, um, we get aggregate metrics about which, which dApps are more popular and stuff like that. So uh, we, you know, the month over month changes of what dApps people are using very wildly, like every month. Um, and, and actually it's really fun um, in my role to like go and I can just see like, oh, what's what's the top 10 this month and go and try all of them. Um, it's It's been really, uh, really fun for me. Um, but, uh, you know, most months, the most popular thing that, thing that people do is, send payments to one another or just send transactions to another wallet or something like that. Um, after that, the DEX um, category tends to be uh, the most popular. Um, then in, in most recent months, it's that. And then uh, the DeFi, DeFi use cases are, are number three and then, uh, and then games and then DAOs. Uh, and within each of those categories, the sites that are the most popular, they vary wildly. Um, the, the space is just growing so rapidly and there, there's so many new use cases and new sites and new platforms that uh, there's not just like a consistent, oh, this is what people do in MetaMask. And I think that by, by trying to be permissionless and give people a platform for innovation and um, to empower the developer ecosystem, we're we're best positioned to uh, to to serve those those many use cases. Another really cool thing, Jacob, about this metric is this is a very common Web two metric, right? Like if you look at like annual reports of a Facebook or the social any social platform, they're going to report out in monthly active users and daily active users, and that's exactly what this is. They they don't quite understand the other metrics that DeFi use, such as like you know, maybe active wallets or amount of value, total locked. Um, so, so that's pretty cool. But I'm also like, I just want to um, step back and think about 1 million users 
of a DeFi, a bankless DeFi wallet product. That is a fantastically huge milestone. I remember at uh, in the quarter one, the first quarter of this year, we were talking about like, what's the size? What's the population of everybody who uses DeFi? And the numbers came out around, you know, 250,000 to 300,000 people, right? So the, the size of a small U.S. city, you know, like a, a Richmond, Virginia or something like that. Now, here we are six months later, uh, and we've got uh, metrics that are telling us there are 1 million monthly active users in DeFi. Well, now we've grown from a city the size of a Richmond, Virginia, and now we're a San Jose. Now we're in Austin, Texas. Like, that's a, a major uh, metropolis at this point. Um, I can't wait to see as we extrapolate that hockey stick forward, how it grows. Well, you know, how long until we're, we're larger than a, a small nation, for example, and then how long after that until we're larger than the United States of America. Um, so it's very exciting to see these numbers and, uh, congrats to, you know, your success for helping to onboard the world world into a bankless money system. We really appreciate what you guys are doing at MetaMask. Um, I want to transition to another exciting element, I think, that's coming out with MetaMask is you guys are, you, you dropped the, the mobile wallet, which is super cool. Um, a number of us, particularly, I would say the, the DeFi super users among us, uh, really love the desktop version. And love the desktop version because it's so damn versatile. Like you can do anything with it. So any DeFi app, it just kind of works out of the box natively. You can do things um, like connect your, your Ledger hardware wallet to it. So it feels like if you're, if you're prioritizing security, it is one of the most secure ways to actually use DeFi. You don't have to trust a, a smart contract wallet, which they're coming along, but they're somewhat new. Um, so like MetaMask is fantastic for that. And you guys are starting to add some more features uh, I think I'm seeing to the desktop version as well. And that's starting with this idea of MetaMask swaps. Can you talk about MetaMask swaps uh, and in general, what's kind of in store for the feature set of the desktop version here? Yeah, I'd, I'd also love, um, you mentioned hardware wallets. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that too. If yeah, please. I'll come back to that in a minute. But uh, so, so we've launched this new swaps product um, it is, it's funny, uh, I'll tell you the whole story of it. So we started out with just the idea, let's pick a DEX aggregator um, that pulls in a bunch of liquidity sources and bring that to MetaMask. Um, so there, there's a few DEX aggregators in the space. Um, there, there's some really great ones. And uh, we went out and we actually, um, we tried all of them and we did a study internally on, on which was the best one that we were going to pick. And we ended up with this split that was like all of these basically almost evenly compete with each other in different scenarios based on the order size, based on the specific token, based on their own unique approaches to gas. And so uh, a team member made this like weird app called Aggregator Aggregator. Um, and uh, I, I was actually just looking at an old screenshot of it. Uh, but it took all of the DEX aggregators and it pinged them individually. And it allowed us to get the best possible price for the user and then to route the order 
through the specific DEX aggregator or direct DEX that made the most sense for the user. So, um, so we've rolled this out um, now and, and obviously it's, it's a lot more robust and, and beautiful than the original uh, aggregator, aggregator was. But uh, so, so we've rolled this out. Um, we're aggregating uh, many different DEX aggregators. We're aggregating APIs that are not um, as readily available to people. We've also got uh, uh, private market makers who are providing liquidity to it as well um, that, that wouldn't necessarily uh, be available otherwise. Um, and we're, uh, we're, we're bringing this to, to end users um, and trying to, to really take uh, that million monthly active users that you mentioned many of whom have never even done deck swaps. Like they onboarded into MetaMask to play games, to, to be a part of a community, all, all kinds of different use cases. And to make that feature set more available to them to make it more convenient. And then also to give them confidence that when they make a deck swap, that they're actually getting a fair price for, uh, for, the, the, um, for, the, for the swap. So that, uh, that's now available today in Firefox. Uh, we're looking to roll it out to Chrome very, very shortly. I think next week, um, plus or minus. Um, and we'd love to bring this to, to mobile as well. Fantastic. That was actually a YouTube question. Um, hey, you know, when, when is it going to release to other browsers? So it sounds like next week for Chrome. Uh, it's fantastic news. And Jacob, you wanted to say something about uh, hardware. Um, yeah, don't hold me to that date, by the way. That's speculation <laughs> and estimation. Things, Never. Not things are complex. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, um, well, uh, did, did you want to talk, ask me more about this? And we can go to the hardware wallets in a second. I didn't. Well, okay. I guess, so swap seems pretty straightforward, but basically uh, to maybe to summarize and you can correct me if there's, you know, anything wrong, you, you open the extension basically. And within the MetaMask wallet itself, there's some functionality that allows you to move from one asset to another. Uh, and it gets you the best price using that aggregator of aggregators type of, of formula. So I could move from ETH to a die or a die to a, you know, wifey or something like that just with a couple of clicks. Is that kind of it? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good summary. So Very the, cool. the reason why I think this is such a big deal is because uh, yeah, historically, at least from what I've seen, MetaMask has been a product that has pushed complexity out to the edges, right? It lets the websites take care of crazy logic and MetaMask just operates as this like coupler between your wallet and that website, right? And so this is like the first feature I've seen MetaMask rolled out, roll out that has complexity on the inside of MetaMask, right? Which is kind of a big step for MetaMask outside of its, you know, previous, you know, keep things simple on, keep things simple and secure, and then just, you know, make everything, you know, ask the user for permission if they want things to be more complex. Um, so what, what was the thought process with, you know, adding in complexity into MetaMask natively? So I think the way that we think about it is we want to be a wallet that serves the whole ecosystem and the whole community uh, first. And we're definitely principally still focused on, on being a universal wallet. Um, that, that has not changed 
uh, really at all. We're providing some additional, like where we see clear adoption of a specific use case um, where we can make it easier for people to do. We are bringing some of those features into the wallet. Um, you mentioned swaps, but there's also another example of that on mobile. We actually launched an aggregator of on-ramps. So uh, a MetaMask mobile user can, uh, can purchase crypto through MetaMask mobile um, and be routed through the appropriate uh, on-ramp to the country that they're in. Um, so we're, we're aggregating wire, we're aggregating uh, Transac, which is itself an aggregator of other on-ramps. Um, and uh, br bringing those two together. And so we're trying to make it easier for people to get ETH, to get DAI, um, and uh, to do so in wh whatever country that they're based in. Um, so I, I think that, uh, you know, we, we wanna make those kinds of things available um, while principally we're still focused on serving the entirety of the ecosystem. Very good. Yeah. So maybe jumping to that um, hardware question. So the reason this is, I think, um, important is, you know, the reason DeFi super users love your product, again, is because it's so versatile. It just works with everything. But also, if you are um, doing things with larger capital amounts, larger capital pools, um, you know, you're most comfortable probably holding your own keys on some sort of a hardware device or some sort of multi-sig, right? There might be a handful of smart contract wallets that um, are mature enough to be trusted, maybe a, multis, uh, a Gnosis multi-sig, maybe um, an Argent wallet, getting closer, right? But if it's large amounts, the safest play, place to, to do it is, is directly like self-custodying, not in a smart contract wallet. We've seen you know, issues like the parity hack in the past. So um, can you talk a little bit more about hardware support? Because that's been kind of a killer combination, I know, for many folks in the bankless community. You take a hardware wallet like a Ledger, or Trezor, and you combine that with MetaMask, and now you have your own self-sovereign banking interface and can do anything in DeFi in a very secure way. Yeah, so um, so, so thanks for that. So a bunch of, we, we have a bunch planned on the hardware wallet front. Um, and we're, we're, this has been one of the, the most popular things that we do, but it's also been uh, one of the more finicky things in some ways because of third-party APIs. So um, a lot of the the a lot of hardware wallets were built around U2F and, and WebHID, which are APIs that force or that, that give the, the browser or the operating system in different circumstances um, the they're dependent on on those APIs. So in You'll have some some challenges for some users, like on on Windows. Um, there's annoying pop-ups to use those APIs. Um, so we're we're working together with the Ledger team on a better um, a better flow for for that. Um, I don't have anything to announce yet, but uh, we'll have a much more versatile and universal solution there. I believe. Um, we also have a pull request um, that you can find uh, where uh, MetaMask is uh, potentially going to be supporting uh, QR code based hardware wallets, air, air gapped hardware wallets. So we'd, we'd love to, you know, 
someone can use a device that doesn't go online anymore, an old phone without a SIM card in it. Um, you can use that as a hardware wallet and uh, use the camera on your phone. There's other hardware wallets that's coming, that are coming out with cameras and screens that, that are air-gapped. Um, we'd love to be able to support a broader diversity of, of things and things that aren't dependent on third-party APIs. Um, we are also coming out with a plugin system that is, that's going to allow the addition of additional hardware wallets. So any hardware wallet manufacturer uh, will be able to add their hardware wallet to MetaMask through a snap. Um, snaps, they get installed uh, during the connect flow to a site. So, um, you know, the user could go out to, to the hardware wallet site, um, install a plugin um, that, that will allow support for that specific uh, that specific hardware wallet use case. And uh, we, we'd love to lower the bar of entry for, um, for hardware wallets. And we don't want to be the gatekeeper of which integrations are in MetaMask or which ones are not. So we're increasingly moving towards this uh, sort of permissionless um, platform for, for innovation and extension of, of MetaMask itself. Jacob, one thing that really excites me is that MetaMask really offers this obfuscation layer, which you know maybe in, in different words is kind of like this user aggregation layer where you guys are, at least with this swap, with this new swap feature, you guys are the aggregator of aggregators, right? And so there's a lot of DeFi protocols that are operating behind the scenes to make the MetaMask swap feature work, right? So, you know, you, it, MetaMask looks to Uniswap for its price. It looks to DexAg for its price. Uh, when DexAg looks at Kyber for its price, to me, what I'm seeing is a manifestation of the protocol sync thesis, which uh, if, if you're familiar, the protocol sync thesis is protocols that are just, you know, operate as infrastructure, agnostic, credibly neutral infrastructure, fall down to the bottom and then surface layer, surface level uh, interfaces, things like, like uh, MetaMask, tap into those protocols in order to offer services to its users. And what you guys are doing is really clever is you're adding on a 0.875% fee onto the swap for it to add to that service, which is, to my knowledge is MetaMask's first big step into actual monetization of, of the product um, from, from what I can tell. So are there fu uh, future uh, like kind of... Um, you know, value added features that you guys are thinking about where you guys also take, take your guys' uh, your, your, your fee, your cut to help support the MetaMask business and maybe grow this thing into something, you know, massive? Is, are, are there future products coming down the line that kind of fit in the same pattern? Yeah, so um, we don't have any other value added services to announce yet with the exception of uh, the, the other one that I, um, the other one that I mentioned was the, the on-ramp aggregator. Um, so we have that on mobile today. Um, we make a small revenue from that as well. Um, and uh, we've historically had just wire um, and, and a couple other uh, solutions on the extension. But um, so the, the two ways that we do make money are from the on-ramp aggregator and from the swaps feature. Um, the, I, I don't know what the, the long-term pricing of the swaps feature will be. Um, we, we had originally announced a 0.3% um, to a 0.875% uh, depending on swap size and different things like that. Um, we haven't rolled out the dynamic pricing 
to uh, to the to the Firefox version yet, and we're looking at a lot of data, thinking about uh, what the the best uh, the best way to approach it is. We we did intentionally set um, we we did a lot of research onto how much money we were going to be saving people, and so it, it varies a lot depending on swap size, depending on different scenarios. But we've seen swaps where we're saving people five percent. Um, we're we're able to really save the end user a lot of money. Um, and it varies a lot based on the order size, based on different scenarios, but we feel really good that we have a really strong value proposition and that we're saving people, uh, saving people money. We're not trying to do this as like fee collectors. It's not just like, I mean, convenience is a part of it, but we wanna give people confidence that they're getting the best swap price. Um, and so our, our fees are sort of built around that. Very cool. All right, I want to talk about this uh, this last maybe major feature set that uh, we're starting to see rollups actually come into existence in a big way in DeFi. Even um, starting to see Ethereum rollups actually projects like, deploy on Ethereum rollups first before they deploy on mainnet, which is super exciting. Right now in Meta MetaMask, um, you can kind of you know change from mainnet to a testnet um, to you know something like Ribston or 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 some other testnet. Uh, very easily, yeah. yeah X die and just like a click of a button, is that is that? Can you do the same thing for a rollup? Let's say this optimism rollup with synthetics and um, with Uniswap comes into existence. Will will that be you know able to natively plug into MetaMask as easy as a, a click of a button and you're on this new network? So, uh, so I'll I'll so a few things that we have announced today. Um, there's lots of lots of things to talk about, but uh, so we've announced our plugin system uh, late last year. Um, there was a developer preview of the plugin system that's available today, and that can support both EVM compatible custom blockchains, and it can support um, non-EVM compatible custom blockchains, uh, layer twos, like um, for example, Starkware. You can't just add Starkware as a custom network today. Um, you you need a you need a wallet that's compatible with its name. Um, so we're building this plugin system that allows the user during the connect flow to a site to add a custom blockchain um, and to uh, to to have that as a, as a part of their MetaMask wallet. Um, there's a lot of security things that we're figuring out with it. Um, we're we're also uh, we're doing some some other uh, some some other exciting stuff um, with uh, complementary blockchains uh, that are being used for file storage. So yesterday you might have seen uh, got announced that Filecoin uh, is is doing a, a plugin and, and Snap together with MetaMask. So you'll be able to do data storage and, and stuff like that from from MetaMask. Um, so we we really want MetaMask to be uh, deeply extensible and to allow the developer community to start ex extending what MetaMask can do. Um, we also, we want to have contract account APIs. So a, a wallet developer of a, of a specific contract account standard can, can create a contract account wallet. Uh, you can import your contract account wallet into MetaMask. So even if you were using a, a different, um, you know, using a specific contract account, 
Um, Say like a, a Gnosis multisig, for instance. Yeah, exactly. Um, you'd, you'd be able to import that um, with the plugin system. Um, so we're we're really committed to that. It's it's very important to us. It is technically challenging. Um, we're doing a lot of really interesting stuff with security as well to make to make it work. So we've got this product. Uh, it's it's a library called LavaMote that sandboxes um, all of the open source dependencies to the wallet. Um, so we're we're really excited and and uh, proud of that. Uh, we take security extremely seriously. And so we're, we're doing a lot of innovation in this space. Um, Lava Mode also uses something called CES or, or Secure ECMAScript, um, which is a, a JavaScript sandboxing method. Um, the, um, in, in terms of, we'll also have some other, um, some other announcements short of, the, of SNAPS. Uh, to announce in, in the coming few weeks, but um, not ready yet. It sounds Very like you guys cool. have a ton of stuff in the back pocket. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's great. Well, um, Jacob, th thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to have you. There's so much more we could get into. We haven't even talked about like Infura and or MetaMask token or other future things, but uh, we'd love to have you guys back on State of the Nation to talk more about that as those exciting announcements come in. Uh, thanks for thanks for joining us, though, Jacob. Yeah, thank you guys so much. That uh, that token one is a very popular request. Um, <laughs> I bet. Uh, so anyway, um, thank thank you guys so much, and I I really appreciate it. Well, Cheers. fantastic. Take care, Jacob. All right, David. Now this is the point in time yeah. where I'm supposed to announce uh, sponsors, <laughs> basically. So to the sponsors that made this possible, thank you very much. We're going to show a little bit about their tools in just a second here, and then we'll be back talking to Lucas Campbell about the Q3 token report that we just Q3 put out. token report. Stay tuned. Right, here we go. Zapper is this new tool that I use to check out all of my assets in DeFi. As you guys have known, DeFi has absolutely exploded recently. And so managing your assets is getting harder and harder because there's so many different places and so many different assets that it could be. So I'm going to put my Ethereum address in here and Zapper is going to tell me where all of my assets are across Ethereum, right? So uh, here are all of the assets in this wallet. Uh, there's, there's a decent amount of them. Uh, and it's also going to tell me where I've deposited assets into various DeFi protocols, right? So there's some uh, yield farming going on. There's some liquidity pooling going on. We can also look more granularly at the specific protocols that it's involved with in this explore feature. So it's got some assets deposited into Uniswap. It's got some assets deposited into Balancer. And also with Zapper, you can just exchange straight from the Zapper interface, right? So this is just another layer on top of Uniswap or other exchanges on Ethereum that allow you to swap assets, right? So check them out at zapper.fi. It'll give you a nice clean portal to invest your assets in DeFi. And you can also connect to multiple wallets if you use multiple wallets all at once, and it'll give you an aggregate of every single wallet that you own. Check them out at zapper.fi. Also, this is definitely not my wallet. Unstoppable Domains is helping the world become censorship resistant and permissionless. If you are looking for a censorship resistant website that no one can take down, go to unstoppabledomains.com and type in the domain that you think that you want. So I'm going to type in the domain that I think that I want, Trustless Date, and it's going to tell me some of the options that I can get to get a permissionless domain, trustlessdate.crypto. 
And so what you can do with trustlessdate.crypto or whatever domain that you want is you can, you can purchase it and then it can be a URL that you direct people to that no nation state can take down. That's what unstoppable domains is all about. What's also really helpful with unstoppable domains is that wallets can integrate unstoppable domains so that the addresses that you send your crypto assets to can become human readable. And this doesn't work for just Ethereum. You also can do this for Bitcoin or Litecoin or any blockchain at all, where, where wallets can resolve to your human readable name. So you can tell Bitcoiners to send you Bitcoin to trustlessstate.crypto or yournamehere.eth. Check them out at unstoppabledomain.com. All right, Bankless Nation, we are back to talk about the Q3 DeFi token report. And we are joined by Lucas Campbell, who is a Bankless editor and analyst on our team, puts out these fantastic reports every quarter. Lucas, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thank you guys for having me. Oh, well, it's great. It's great to have you, my friend. So uh, <laughs> we want to dig into this, this token report. Um, and of course, uh, aside from yourself, the other party that really made this this possible is our token report sponsor, Diversify, which is a killer decentralized exchange for serious traders. It's private transactions, instant settlement, all the bankless way. They are doing some really cool stuff with Layer 2, particularly Starkware, to make all of this really fast. With solutions like Diversify, I feel like you don't even need a central uh, crypto exchange anymore. We will include a link to diversify where you can start trading on it in the show notes. And just want to thank them for making this report possible. One, um, of, the, one of the first companies to really get onto a layer two up and running. And, and I, I use their exchange like really quickly when they first like launched and like the, the UI was pretty pretty simple, pretty, pretty easy to use. Um, but then it's all already like, so become so polished over the last like two, three, four weeks. So big mm -hmm. yeah. diversify. You can't even tell they're, they're a decentralized exchange. There right. was a time where you could like tell, oh my God, this is a decentralized exchange. Right. Like, you know, bra brace yourself for a clunky <laughs> user experience. It's not like that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, all right, Lucas, we've got the report open. We want to talk about some of the highlights, man, that you saw. So this is the, the uh, report that we issued on Bankless. We've got it, of course, in a web version, but also this cool institutional Wall Street grade <laughs> uh, PDF version. And you've called this report, Lucas, the rise of the ownership economy. Can we dig into that name? So why did why'd you call it that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. So you guys talked about this a lot last week with Jesse Walden and the ownership economy, but really the name came from this mania, this yield farming mania that happened in Q3, where the core idea was give ownership to the users, right? So it would be like the equivalent of like, let's say Uber distributing equity to anyone that Gave, a, gave or took an Uber ride, or let's say like Google giving out shares to anyone that used that search engine. So like the equivalent of this in DeFi is how Compound gave comp tokens, which you know pretty much kickstarted the whole, the whole mania. He gave comp tokens to anyone that provided liquidity or borrowed assets from the, from the protocol. And that pretty much just kickstarted this insane, insane quarter um, <laughs> that we can kind of just see in the data, but uh, yeah, I mean, the rise of the ownership economy is really just this core notion of giving ownership to the users and making them, um, you know, the stewards of the protocol over the long term. 
All right. And it was an insane quarter. You know what? Let's, let's just get right to the quarter. I want to come back to the shift uh, from price to earnings PE to mm -hmm. uh, pr price to sales. Cause I think that's important just at, you know, as far as a, a takeaway, but let's get into this insane quarter that we saw. And he, here's kind of like the, you know, the money headline here, but um, we saw a quarter to quarter revenue increase for these DeFi tokens, we call them capital assets because they're similar to stocks and their ability to potentially in the future uh, produce cash flows so that can be valued as such. But the revenue increase was 26x from last quarter, right? So this is this is the graph. These are all <laughs> quarters here: Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4, and then oh my God, here's Q3. <laughs> it's like massive. So we mm -hmm. went from 3.9 million in revenue created by these DeFi protocol tokens to 108 million revenue created by these DeFi tokens in Q3. Is that the, the ownership economy, the yield farming mania that you were talking about is, is much of the growth as a result of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, definitely it was a lot of that. I mean, Uniswap was like a big contributor to that. So a lot of people were, you know, trading DeFi tokens, were swapping in and out of tokens. You know, a lot of um, the yield farming protocols like featured Uniswap LP tokens. So like Uniswap is obviously like the biggest contributor with $67 million in that quarter alone distributed to uh, liquidity providers. Wow. Wow. Okay. And then who are the big token winners uh, for the quarter? I guess, uh, is this a graph of this is still a graph of, of quarterly uh, mm -hmm. revenues. Is this a change from previous quarter or is this just, you know, in general, so that what's is the, this graph again? Yeah, so that is the DeFi price perform or the token price performance throughout the quarter. So okay. between July 1st um, and September 30th, Aave was the biggest gainer with 300% increase. Um, I will caveat that with saying that YFI was probably the real gainer, but it yeah. effectively went from zero to, you know, a billion. So it was so like an infinite gain. <laughs> um, so I couldn't put that on the graph, but um, yeah, Ave kept kind of um, kept its lead. It had a really awesome quarter in Q2 as well. Um, and it just kind of kept going off the back of the Avonomics upgrade, which is like this major overhaul to the token economics and introducing um, decentralized governance and some yield farming mechanisms and a whole bunch of other stuff. So Ave again with 300% um, revenue growth in their in their DeFi pro, uh, token. What, what were a couple of the others? So there's there's two more that are above 100% mm -hmm. uh, growth. What 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 are they? Yeah. So the other second biggest one was Loopring, which I think a lot of um, DeFi investors were kind of getting tired of the gas fees on Ethereum and we're definitely looking towards like layer two solutions. So like, I think another notable one that wasn't necessarily uh, depicted on the graph was uh, like Omisco, OMG, um, had a really awesome quarter from what I remember. Um, so I think like a lot of DeFi investors were looking towards layer two as like an opportunity to like capitalize on like the increase in gas fees and just like the lack of usability for Ethereum during that time period. I don't know if you guys remember that, but like you were paying, you know, hundreds of dollars in gas fees to get in and out of like, you know, different yield farms. Um, Absolutely. The last one was uh synthetics there with 155% gain. And um, I mean, synthetics is always just pushing out new stuff. They're constantly up, you know, releasing upgrades. They were the best performing token last year in 2019. They had like, you know, a meteoric rise and they're just kind of, um, piggybacking off that momentum and, and 
keep on keeping the keeping the train rolling here and also so, one of the first apps to also leverage layer two as well right mm-hmm. so like loopring yep. it's itself is a layer two but synthetics is an application but is now mm-hmm. kind of pushing the envelope with getting applications onto layer twos so interesting yep. to see like you know no one's gonna no one's gonna point at some price increase in synthetics and say that's not because of exactly what synthetics deserves but also what they deserve is, is you know, because they they are the ones that push the envelopes and move really fast and get onto L2s as fast as possible when it's necessary. Mm-hmm. So, you know, tip of the hat to, to those guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're they're definitely testing the optimism test net right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can stake on it right now and they're incentivizing it, the whole work. So um, definitely check that out and see if you're eligible. It does feel like the tokens that are building more are doing better in general. Like Ave, that team, mm-hmm. just like, always building, always releasing things. So same with synthetics. So, I mean, the builders have have really won over the past year. Um, Really quick before we kind of talk about ETH as a DeFi asset as well, and then break it down these DeFi tokens by by segment. um, Let's talk about the shift from price to earnings to um, price to sales and what that sort of means, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're evaluating a capital asset like a stock, investors tend to use this price to earnings ratio, which basically tells you how much you are paying when you buy that stock for every dollar of earnings. So a Netflix might be around 80 80 price to earnings Mm -hmm. ratio. That means you're paying it around $80 for $1 of earnings. So you're you're anticipating that it's going to continue to grow in order to justify a price to earnings ratio of 80. And uh, we've done a lot of work in the past kind of looking at these DeFi tokens from that lens, because it can be evaluated from that lens. How much money are you paying for every $1 earned in um, by the Aave protocol, for instance, right? And that can be mm-hmm. a relative valuation metric that's useful. But there is kind of an asterisk there in that a lot of what we're looking at is not like bottom line earnings, like profit, but mm-hmm. when we're talking about revenue for these DeFi tokens, we're actually looking at top line revenue, actually their, their sales revenue. So mm-hmm. that's sort of the lens. It's not so much price to earnings, it's really um, price to top line sales because there can be other costs uh, you know, before you get to sort of the bottom line revenue. Um, is that a good way to summarize it, Lucas? Or like, what would you add mm-hmm. on that concept here? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Um, I would say like, I think the best way to think about it is like price to earnings is the profit that is accrued to the protocol's token whereas price to sales is really just the revenue generated from like usage of the protocol Uh, right so i think like a really good um, example of this is kyber Um, so the liquidity protocol uh you know generated i think it was like 10 million dollars in revenue off of like a 0.2 percent trading fee and right now governance dictates that 73 percent give or take is accrued to KNC holders via like ETH dividends and then a small amount of it's burned. Um, whereas the remaining 26.5% uh, is distributed to like reserves, which are kind of like the Kyber's like liquidity providers almost. Um, so you kind of see that distinction, whereas like Kyber's price to sales is 21, whereas their price to earnings is a little bit higher because only 73% of that revenue is accrued to the token. So the price to earnings is 29. That um, makes perfect sense, right? So, um, but 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 on that, so like we've got a, a price to earnings of twenty nine, a price to sales of twenty one, a little bit mm-hmm. lower, but price to earnings of twenty nine. By the way, um, that just seems super low. 
right? Like mm -hmm. high flying tech companies right now on the NASDAQ are going for PE ratios of like, you know, 80, Amazon's like 160, mm -hmm. 170. I don't know what Zoom is. What's Zoom, Lucas, these days <laughs> from a price to earnings perspective? Um, like, 411 right now yeah. 411 right now that's that's the, the you know the zoom stock that we're using zoom so fantastic um <laughs> for them but, but that's a pretty high valuation metric using um, using their product to tell their to tell them that, that their valuation's <laughs> really high <laughs> right well the product could be great but the you know stock price could be high relative to um to what it's worth um but anyway are are we seeing a lot of very low price to earnings ratios like like kyber i mean um, just that seems super cheap still for the potential growth of DeFi. Is, is that the case? Mm, yeah, I mean, I would say so. Um, I would like, there's a couple that are like a little bit more nuanced, like Uniswap and Compound and like, you know, a few others aren't actually like generating any earnings for um, token holders. It's all revenue. Um, with that, like Maker was another notable one where right now they're generating like, you know, $80,000 per day. And they don't have the DSR on, so they don't have that die savings rate. So all of those revenues are being allocated or directed to MKR burns, right? So I think I, in the report, it was like, you know, they're at a new low of a PE ratio of like 30 or something. Um, so you're definitely seeing like the protocols that do accrue value to token holders that have like that mechanism, you know, they're definitely hitting, you know, new lows or they're on the lower end, you know, especially when we're looking at some of these other tech stocks that are, you know, valued at like sky high valuations, you know. Was there a place in the report, Lucas, where the PE ratios are that we could see or the price to sales ratios? That we could um, see there the was tickets? a price to sales ratio. I did not do one on the price to earnings just because it was like a lot more nuanced. To Where's the price to sales well, page? Um, if I can. Should be, let's see, scroll up. It was in that first section, like the DeFi overview. Ah. Uh, Less than miss it. Okay. So, so what does that mean? I'll, I'll scroll up to find it, but what does that mean for a token? Like, like Uniswap, for instance, it's almost like a Uniswap is, um, clearly there's value there, but it's mm -hmm. almost like pre-revenue. It's almost like Facebook, right. uh, while it was building network effect and acquiring users, but it hadn't yet turned on its ad modules and started mm -hmm. making money. Um, mm -hmm. is that kind of how you'd think about it? It just, all it needs to do is sort of flick a switch. <laughs> and then, you know, they could start channeling some of the, the uh, fees to users, mm -hmm. and then it could be a capital asset that's generating actual earnings. Yeah. So Uniswap is actually a really interesting example, because if you remember Uniswap in, uh, Uniswap V2 introduced this protocol charge with like an on off switch, which is governed at the time was some like ambiguous governance thing. And now it's like, oh, it's governed by uni holders. Right. right. So the protocol charge is switched on the 0.3% uh, swap fee, 0.05% uh, of that. So quarter quarter basis point or 0.25% and then 0.05 is directed to um, a protocol treasury. So really what that money can be used for is really up in the air, right? that right now at the current earnings or the current revenue is about $45 million um, in annualized revenue to that treasury if mm -hmm. the protocol fee was switched on. Mm -hmm. um, and you could use that in theory 
to burn or like distribute ETH dividends or whatever you wanted to do, you could, you know, accrue that, that capital to the token holders. Um, but that's not necessarily what's in like that social contract. I think like a lot of it's going to be used to like fund um, and incentivize like community contributions and the long-term development and growth of like Uniswap at large. But what's um, interesting is like uh, uh, Kyber almost set a precedent there where mm-hmm. like it did distribute over 70%. It is distributing over 70% to actual um, mm-hmm. KNC owners, right? I wonder if Uniswap mm-hmm. will follow a similar path. They'd at least have to be competitive with some of these other protocols in terms of what they uh, distribute. Here's the price to sales, by the way, that I was mm-hmm. missing earlier. And Uniswap right now is a 12 price to sales mm-hmm. uh, ratio, um, which is absolutely crazy. When you think of a Zoom at uh, 411, um, not quite apples to apples, but like mm-hmm. kind of close. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, all right. Well, let's break this down by sector a little bit, Lucas. So um, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll come to ETH at the end if we have time, but um, decentralized exchanges, how did, how did they do? What, I guess, what are the, the sections that you outlined in this report? And then maybe let's start with decentralized exchanges, but like, that's the first, what are mm-hmm. the other sections? You got like derivatives and something else, right? Right. Yeah. So we did uh, DEXs, lending, derivatives, and then we did some like miscellaneous highlights, um, namely with Wi-Fi and the Nexus Mutual. Okay. Um, so in terms of like the DEX sector, pretty much led the charge, right, in Q3. Um, I think overall, the DEX sector aggregated over $40 billion in volume in Q3 um, with Uniswap, you know, comprising of like $25 billion of it. So a really solid portion of the revenue or the volume in Q3 was from Uniswap. I think like Curve was in second with 8 billion and then Balancer with $2.7 billion in quarterly volume. Um, so the deck sector really led the charge. They killed it. Um, a lot of the revenue is attributed. Uh, you know, a lot of the DeFi revenue at large is attributed to the deck sector. Um, I can't remember what the specific number was. Yeah, $91 million of like the 108 was from DEXs. So wow, um, they crushed it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want me to keep going on the, on the DEXs here? Um, yeah. Anything else on the DEXs before we pop the lending? Um, we kind of talked about the Uniswap stuff. So that was kind of like my sector highlight, which was talking about Uniswap and how that protocol fee can be allocated towards like, um, accruing earnings for token holders. Um, so that was really the majority of it. Balancer had a really awesome quarter. I think they generated like 16 to eight to $18 million in revenue to LPs which given the launched back in like March, April, you know, spring of 2020, you know, that's pretty, uh, pretty impressive given the short time span. Um, but yeah, I mean, Dex is crushed at this quarter. Uniswap and Balancer. Uh, so it seems like even in the Dex sector, it was automated market makers that really dominated in terms mm-hmm. of revenue. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Very cool. All right, let's jump to lending. Um, yeah, lending was, had a comeback quarter here. Um, so let's see compound. I will say that like compound and Aave, the way that the token terminal, who's the people that provided the data, the way they calculate, um, the revenue is the interest accrued to suppliers. Right. Ah. So it's, it's kind of a nuanced thing where a lot of the, um, the revenue is really just going to people that supplied assets to the protocol, you know, through interest. Um, you know, with that said, there's obviously a, uh, an earnings mechanism that could be implemented there where like a portion of that interest is accrued to token holders, right? Of Aave token holders or comp token holders. 
that's not the case right now, but uh, I think that was just an important um, nuance to kind of understand about lending revenues. With that, I think Maker was kind of the biggest highlight. Um, the ended up turning on the stability fee after multiple months following like Black Thursday of 0% zero, zero stability fee, not earning anything. MKR was diluted, you know, it was, a, it was a tough past couple months for MKR, but you know, they're back on track now. There's a, nearly a billion dollars of dye um, in circulation right now. They're earning, you know, somewhere around 70 to $80,000 per day with the entirety of that being accrued to MKR holders, right? Because the DSR is not online. So all of that is going to earnings, die, or MKR is kind of, you know, back on track to say the least, which is, which is a good sign. David, just on that, do you remember when we had Mariano Conte on uh, mm -hmm. a few months ago? I mean, this is back in April or so. Mm -hmm. And he made the bold, crazy prediction that Dai would hit 1 million or 1 billion, excuse me, mm -hmm. in circulation this year. Mm -hmm. And that seemed absolutely outlandish and crazy. Right. And now here we are. <laughs> here we are. Well, we're not, we're not there yet, but we are so close. You can, you can taste it, right? So close. Mm -hmm. Very yeah, I impressive. Think we're at like and I do want to make that million. distinction between Maker and the rest of the DeFi protocols. You know, the, the DeFi yield farming, it, it was really a thing because of token issuance, right? And, you know, while there is revenue going through these protocols, the reason why there was this DeFi mania was that because like there, there was just a lot of issuance of valuable tokens, right? Uh, and I think what was going to come is a lot of those tokens, as Lucas just kind of alluded to, a lot of those tokens don't capture the revenue of the protocol. A lot of the revenue, like, like the Uniswap versus Kyber example, like Uniswap captures a lot of revenue and then redirects it to liquidity providers, not necessarily to the uni token. And Maker had their token economics knocked from like day one, where like revenue from the protocol went into the token itself. And it's really exciting to see that get turned back on. So like Maker as like a leader of the protocol that is both generating revenue and also it accruing to the token, which it's supposed to be designed for, is like the exemplar model that I think a lot of other DeFi protocols are either going to get to this point or not go anywhere at all. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's got like two, two to three years of maturity yeah. on these other uh, tokens. Mm -hmm. And you're, you can kind of see that with it's going through its own cycles. I will rip on Maker for a second, though. Like, I feel like their token economics is a little outdated. Like they don't, they didn't. Yeah, I feel like you could, they could improve a lot on it, right? Like they could be implementing MKR rebates for paying stability fees, kind of like that yield farming mechanism for opening a DAI CDP. Um, I feel like the auction, like, the MKR auction for burning is like kind of not great. I feel like if they had Uniswap with a ton of liquidity, like implementing open market buybacks and stuff like that would be like much more effective. But that's just like my personal opinion. And like, I would love to see interest rates being set algorithmically rather than by MKR governance. So they're they're definitely killing it, but- All good points. I got <laughs> All good points. Yeah, they are taking yeah. this conservative approach at the same time. All right, mm -hmm. let's talk about derivatives who are not traditionally conservative <laughs> types of uh, assets. So what happened here? Um, yeah, so the derivative sector, just in terms of the data that we had was largely almost entirely synthetics, um, yeah. which they made a comeback. Um, their previous record of 1.9 million dollars in quarterly revenue was kind of um, disproportionately reported due to like front running issues. Yep. But they fixed that back in Q2, which is why you see that huge dip. And now they're kind of back on track. They almost exceeded that previous record almost all organically. 
Um, and with that, like you saw, like a pretty substantial increase in the outstanding SUSD, which is Synthetix's native crypto dollar. Um, but yeah, I mean, Synthetix pretty much killed it. I will say like Augur V2 launched um, and then Uma has been doing pretty well. We don't have the data on that, but um, just from what I've seen personally, like Uma has been um, definitely doing some interesting stuff out of that, out of that camp. Yeah, I wonder how uh, UMA token, UMA token looks from a revenue perspective. There's a few other things mm -hmm. that um, I hope we get more data on in the future with Token Terminal, which is um, like uh, MC Dex, which mm -hmm. they did something uh, last quarter, uh, and they they have their 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 token as well. And then also, I kind of wonder what uh, DYDX would look like if they mm -hmm. actually had a token that accrued some of the value of their derivatives mm -hmm. platform because they're definitely doing a, uh, a large amount of volume. So maybe we'll see DYDX. Uh, I feel like Antonio maybe hinted about that on our AMA with mm -hmm. him, David, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll see when, when these other new derivatives platforms get added, how synthetics shapes up because right now it's just dominating everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. We'll put a pin on the DYDX thing. Uh, I have a feeling they'll come out with something, but we'll see. <laughs> All right. So now we've got uh, yield aggregators. Of course, we just got to talk about YFI. They just had a killer quarter. Um, some of those data are not in the data set that we were looking at, but um, mm -hmm. what do you want to touch on with YFI? Yeah. I mean, YFI pretty much had this meteoric rise in DeFi, um, pretty much went from nothing in terms of like token value to over a billion dollars in less than two months. Um, was pretty wild to say the least. Um, and I think the most notable thing out of that was it kind of kickstarted or built upon the fair launch movement, which we talked about in a newsletter post um, before, but it's essentially this token distribution mechanism where you're kind of just building off the altruism of Satoshi Nakamoto and, B and Bitcoin and where everyone just has equal opportunity to earn the tokens. Like there's no founder allocation, there's no VCs, there's no not there's really no um favorable you know token token allocation it's really just equal opportunity for everyone and i think that um that fair launch movement kind of got kick-started and you kind of saw like yam finance and all these other fair launches where there was just you know equal opportunity for everyone to kind of um get a portion of that token supply um, and so. YFI is definitely a capital asset. We don't have the numbers mm -hmm. in this specific report, but it is printing right. money basically. And I can't mm -hmm. wait to see as those numbers get incorporated, how much revenue it's actually throwing off to its, uh, to its holders basically. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Uh, the last one is NXM. So this is Nexus Mutual. So they had a massive quarter wow. in terms of premiums paid. Wow. Um, that, that graph is up and to the right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nexus Mutual killed it. It was actually interesting because like right at the beginning of Q3, like on like July 2nd or 3rd, they launched pooled staking, which was like this new way for NXM holders to stake against contracts and earn those premiums that are depicted on that graph. And that had this, you know, um, transformational effect on Nexus Mutual. Um, and kind of what you saw was this massive, you know, run up in active covers and premiums paid. I think one of the interesting takeaways from that is Nexus Mutual right now has earned over $2 million in premiums from selling like insurance. Um, and it's only paid out $35,000 in claims, right? So like that is insurance right there at its finest. If you were like wondering how 
how the hell like insurance companies make money. Like this is the math right here, like millions of dollars made only a few thousand dollars paid out in claims. Um, and I think that's really interesting, a really interesting um, takeaway when you're looking at Nexus Mutual. Yeah, that's going to be exciting protocol to watch. I'm pretty bullish about its futures, specifically having talked to uh, Hugh Carp, who's the, who's the founder of, mm -hmm. of Nexus a few podcasts ago. All right. So there's also a number of untokenized protocols and applications. We mentioned DYDX, but there's also Instadap, which doesn't have a token, Open, Set, Zapper, Zurion. What do you think over under on whether some of these protocols are going to launch tokens? Yes or no? What do you think, Lucas? Um, I would say I'll take a while. I mean, do we count index for set protocol? I do. I think so. I, I, think I would set launched a token in Q4. All right, so we, we can cross that one I'm off concerned. the list. One already has. <laughs> um, I would assume DYDX would, I would put it like a sure bet. I'm not going to say that, but <laughs> I would, I, I would strongly, you know, think that DYDX would put out a, a token just to get competitive, just because he lost a lot of the market share in Q3 to like Uniswap and all these other DEXs. Um, I'm interested to see how the asset management platforms kind of pay, play out, like Instadab, Zapper, Zerion, like there's not like some sort of set model, token model for them yet. So I'm very interested to see what happens there. And then open, we'll see. We'll see on it, open. It, it's basically like to be competitive, a token needs to be part of the incentive mm -hmm, mechanism. Mm -hmm. It seems right. like uh, that's what Q3 really showed us. Mm -hmm. um, conclusions. Okay. So killer quarter, absolutely phenomenal quarter, but now we're down 50% on DeFi assets. Sad. Um, mm -hmm. So people, people are like, oh, it was a mania as a one-time thing, bubble burst, bye-bye mm -hmm. DeFi. Now we're really excited about Bitcoin and everything else and ignoring <laughs> DeFi for a while. Is uh, Did the bubble pop, Lucas? Or is, is DeFi kind of, did it do its thing and now it's dead? <laughs> mm. um, I will say, what I will say, and I kind of outlined this in the report, is that this is a multi-year market cycle. Um, Ethereum in the last market cycle had, you know, over half a dozen, 30 40%, 50% drawdowns. Um, DeFi has only had one so far after this massive run up. So I would say that if you are, you know, if you subscribe to that thesis of that we're, you know, at the beginning of a bull run, um, I think DeFi is like pretty much cemented itself that it's going to be, you know, a critical part of this bull run. Um, you know, that said, you just never know. Um, I think there's a lot of, you know, profound, and valuable mechanisms and distribution stuff. Like, as we talked about at the beginning, the rise of this ownership economy, I think will have, you know, profound effects beyond just DeFi and um, crypto at large. So I think this is just the first drawdown uh, of many to come <laughs> after awesome. multiple, multiple run-ups. So we'll see. Very good, Lucas. Well, you crushed it on this report, my friend. Um, this, I think, is one of the best reports, if not the best reports on DeFi in the space right now. It is institutional level. So you could send this to you know, your, your investor friend who's tinkering with stocks, and they should be able to understand the terminology. Uh, once again, you can get it on Bankless. Just type in Bankless Q3 token report in Google uh, and bankless.substack.com. Lucas, thanks a lot for, for walking us through that, my friend. Of course, this is uh, this is awesome to do. So thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate it. Looking Cheers. forward to Q4. All right, appreciate it, guys. Thank you.
David, uh, killer quarter, man. And last thing we want to talk about is something that relates to that, because you know what that felt like is we, we did, we did, <laughs> we did years of DeFi, right. Mm-hmm. And then we did a Q1 of DeFi in 2020 and then a Q2 and it felt very gradual. Right. And then suddenly, oh my God, Q3, right. it explodes. Mm-hmm. It's, it's back to the gradually then suddenly meme that we're about to talk about. Right. Right. I, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And kind of De- DeFi to me kind of seems like a, a harbinger of, of things to come, right? Uh, the, what we just witnessed in this last quarter. Uh, and there's a lot of other like meaning and significance that we can pull out of what happened in DeFi in, in Q3 2020. But I think the, the main point that I think that DeFi triggered was that you know, the, these markets are so reflexive. And that's exactly what Lucas was kind of alluding to at the end is like, once, once more, uh, the, the uh, morale of a market shifts and it goes from bearish to bullish, it doesn't just swap back. It doesn't just go backwards. Like we were like, oh, we're down 20, 40 percent. Like, oh, damn. Turns out that wasn't the thing that got us out of the bear market. Like, no, like it's it, it shifted. Like we are now in bull market mentality and bull, bull market mode. And I think Q3 was kind of the spark that lit the fire under under the rest of the crypto market. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's talk about this gradually then suddenly meme because you wrote about it mm-hmm. uh, earlier this week. Um, and maybe maybe first uh, talking about, um, you know, in 2017, you contrast there's this euphoric mania mm-hmm. around ICO tokens. And people probably, a lot of people in mainstream probably last remember crypto from hearing it on CNBC. Right. And all of these ICO mm-hmm. schemes and scams and that sort of thing. And they, a lot of people haven't thought about it until then. But there have been a ton of major changes, right? Even in the past few months, um, you you outlined three of them. What are they? Yeah, so th- this goes along the lines of like back in 2017 and any sort of mania you ha- you tend to feel like the world it- the world is about to enter this new paradigm right and like i <laughs> yes. as somebody that came into crypto in 2017 like i definitely felt i succumbed to that mental model so i, I you know i owned like 20 shit coins which i can't name anymore and i thought that all of them were about to totally reorganize the way that humans like relate to each other like right away like right away like, like, like next going to happen like like yeah. all of a sudden like my mom my sister my friends are all going to be like having a wallet with tokens inside of it to like buy their <laughs> electricity or something like that. Uh, so that was that was grandiose thinking. That was euphoric thinking. And there's that Bill Gates quote where, you know, he says, we overestimate what we can do in a year, but we underestimate what we can do in 10 years. And we're just three years away from that that moment in 2017, maybe three and a half. And China is rolling out a central bank digital currency, right? Like uh, run of the, the square, the biggest payment processor in the United States is making a, an absolute killing of revenue from Bitcoin sales and no other like, you know, sales company is doing that. Right. And also commercial banks are OK, given the green light to custody crypto. And it, there just seems to be like, you know, the, that, that quote I just said, where, you know, we overestimate what we do in one year and underestimate what we can do in 10 well, I think with crypto, with the rate of development, it's like we can shrink 10 down to like four, right? Like if things are really, really moving quickly and all of a sudden it seems like we are crescendoing into kind of the, the products that we are indeed back in 2017, 2018 are starting to come to market. And not this the little the, products, the big products. Yeah. So this is that gra- gradually segment mm-hmm. where all this stuff that mainstream doesn't see because they've been checked out of crypto for a while is is being built and all of this infrastructure is being laid and all of this has been happening. 
And there's also this um, global macro trend, right? Um, like it, it seems like, you know, COVID may have accelerated this even, but it, government, central banks have, uh, they're running out of options, mm -hmm. right? So interest rates down to 0%, mm -hmm. um, QE, they've done rounds of QE already this mm -hmm. year, right? And mm -hmm. it's having diminishing returns and right. it's increasing populism because it's increasing mm -hmm. uh, wealth inequality. Yep. We've talked about the Cantillian effect, right? So now they've got like one option left. And that option is modern monetary theory, something we call MMT, which is basically like uh, printing money mm -hmm. through fiscal policy and airdropping it to people, right? Like, That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what happens in that world where central banks only have one option? Um, yeah. Like what happens? Yeah. So I think in order to start that conversation, we should ask ourselves like what, what, doesn't happen if they don't do that, right? Like what if they sit on their hands and they say like, you know what? The dollar, it's going, there are no more dollars. Like whatever, however many dollars there are out there, that's how many there are. And we're just going to so sit Jer on So Jerome Powell gets real Austrian all of a sudden? real Austrian. Like Jer okay. Jerome Powell turns into a Bitcoiner and be like, you know what? You know what would make the dollar <laughs> Gold better? Bug. To be hard, yeah. hard money, right? Yeah. Imagine in that scenario, a number of absolutely terrible things happen, right? Uh, you know, businesses don't get support during a crisis, right? You know, there's no uh, there's no further unemployment support. We only can give out as much employment as we collect in taxes. You know, revenue for all states and federally, the revenue from taxes is, is down because the economy is like 50% shut off, right? So we don't even, we can't even support ourselves. Uh, and, you know, and, and then, you know, no more, you know, $1,200 checks for, for COVID stimulus, uh, and all, all these things are terrible. And so as a result of, you know, the decision of, of the Federal Reserve turning super Austrian, society basically cr crumbles, right? Civil unrest happens because, you know, the people are under, there, there's too much wealth inequality and the wealth isn't being spread around. And so, you know, if, if we want our economy to not crumble, if we don't want civil unrest, we have to print money, right? Like there's, there's basically, if we want to retain the status quo, Basically, the central government or the, the the Federal Reserve and the central government have to create money and push it into the economy one way or another. And the they reason have no choice. they have no choice. And also, there's no significant reason as to why it's really going to be long term effective. This is just consistently a short term solution, followed by another short term solution, followed by another short term solution, which is money printing after money printing after money printing, right? And so Bitcoin as an asset that is diametrically opposed to MMT, along with how people are just going to become okay with crypto be throughout their, by increased understanding of what it does, I'm seeing, I'm hearing like a very loud crescendoing drum roll of like people clicking as to what this whole crypto thing is really for and what it does and it's in its role in the world non-sovereign assets that aren't dependent on those things that, that that's the thing i think um people maybe don't understand right so let, let's say you and i are hardcore austrians and um, our solution to jerome powell is just like stop the money printing buddy right the problem with that kind of simplistic approach is basically like it's almost not even jerome's powell jerome powell's decision anymore it's almost not even you know Donald Trump's decision, or uh, you know V two Donald Trump, or Joe Biden's decision, because they only make decisions on like a like a four to five, six, mm -hmm. you know, eight year basis, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're trapped in this cycle. They're trapped. they're trapped in the wheel, and they can't really get out of it. I there, there's an element where you know 
what else do you do? It, they're they're um, living with the decisions made by Nixon getting off the, the gold standard in the 1970s, right? Mm -hmm. And there's absolutely no other decisions that are politically tenable that, that they can actually make. So MMT is happening regardless of which party wins, regardless right. of the way the election uh, plays out. And it's not just happening in the U.S. It's happening in every country, every country throughout the world. Every country with a money printer is printing money, right? And, and, and that's why they're so ba based off of like Nixon's choices. Like Nixon's choices to get off the gold standard happened because he was printing money. <laughs> like yeah, that's exactly. how it happened. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. So that's the Bitcoin story, right? And the macro story. And you know, not, not only Bitcoin, of course, but we think Ether is a yeah. a non-sovereign asset as well, and um, can, can be subject to these same headwinds as we're seeing. Um, but let's talk more about Ethereum because uh, that is also sort of a, a gradually mm -hmm. then suddenly type of story. So what's building there? Yeah, to, to me, the first part of the Ethereum story, which is the, the maybe the smaller of two stories or maybe the, the legacy of two stories, uh, the legacy markets, is the supply of stable coins, crypto dollars on Ethereum. And you know, while we were just talking about you know, money printing and the dollar and how the dollar is weakening, it's actually being incredibly strong versus other currencies, right? Uh, and so, you know, you not, you would never, the last thing you would want to be is to be like a third world nation's fiat currency. Because especially in a world where more and more crypto dollars are available and becoming liquid on Ethereum, because the Ethereum payment rails for dollars extends into every single country that has internet, right? Uh, and so, you know, but before you, you know, if you are the Argentine peso or, you know, you know, insert your, you know, not very large fiat currency here, if you are that, you want to be traded as a, your, your constituents of your country want to trade you for dollars, not Bitcoin, right? You know, Bitcoin, the, the narrative behind Bitcoin is great, but if you are from like, if you are a holder of the Argentine peso, you want to go into dollars because that's, dollars are king, cash is king, right? Dollars are the most, uh, you know, liquid asset in the world. And Ethereum is transporting, you know, incredible amounts of US dollar uh, around its network every single day. And the amount of stable coins on Ethereum to support that use case has just exploded. Right. Uh, and even with DeFi yield farming mania coming to an end, we are still seeing an absolute rise in stable coins. And especially with DAI being off its peg, I think that's also always something that's useful to pay attention to. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you met, mentioned dollar, you know, dollar dominance versus other currencies. It is mm -hmm. the strongest of all of the weak fiat currencies. <laughs> and like an example of this is like, uh, why, why are there no euro stable coins right now or Chinese, you know? Mm -hmm. Remember, there would be if there was market demand. Of course, we'll see those in the future. Sure. But the fact that we're not seeing them competing with the crypto dollar mm -hmm. on Ethereum is uh, pretty amazing. We're almost at 25 billion. There's almost no crypto euros to speak of. It's all dollars. That is the preferred reserve currency, at least in fiat land right now, it seems clear. Um, but so how does that tie into Ethereum, though? Yeah, so then we can, t well, that's that's how Ethereum relates to like the global macro environment, right? Like that's how the relationship between Ethereum, COVID, and MMT kind of fits in. Uh, but also there's its own, uh, you know, its own narrative, its own track, which is the development of Ethereum 
right? And so, you know, if you're watching from the sidelines and, and maybe you you are thinking like, you know, you, I'll, I'll check in with Ethereum 2.0 every now and then, and you hear this phase zero thing followed by phase one, phase two, you kind of think like, okay, well, we're going to, you know, first we're going to do phase two, and then we're going to do phase one, and then we're going to do phase two, because that's how numbers work, right? Feels five years away. Yeah. And so like, okay, great. Like the Ethereum people are finally getting to phase zero. And so phase zero can finally start. That's actually not how phase zero, one, two, and two work, right? These are actually things that go in parallel. And like, yes, we do need phase zero to get finalized before we can start on phase one, but the R&D behind phase one and the development behind phase one has been happening as long as, as it has for phase zero, right? These things are being parallelly, these things are going to, uh, being processed in parallel, right? Yeah. And so phase one, phase two, and, and phase zero are all being worked on in tandem. And so what I think is, is about to happen is some sort of uh, compounding progress with Ethereum 2.0. Like as soon as phase zero gets rolled out, like phase phase one is not far behind it. Yeah. And the really interesting thing, I think this was a huge takeaway from our conversation with Vitalik mm -hmm. uh, that we put out earlier in the week is basically like in parallel to, to what you're seeing here on the timeline with phase zero, one and two, there's there's work on Ethereum mm -hmm. that had like scalability work on Ethereum. If the goal of Ethereum in phase two is, is scalability, right? All of this technology that's being developed and has been created over the past two years around rollups uh, and ZK rollups, optimistic rollups, and you know even you know Plasma with OMG and some of these things, um, they're going to feed into the you know the Ethereum two roadmap. So like that's going on concurrently with all of the ETH2 stuff so that we can get to like a phase one mm -hmm. and actually have all of the scalability or close to all of the scalability promise um, that, that we need um, that, that would have only been available in phase two if it was just the ETH2 roadmap, right? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like we got all this stuff on existing ETH1 scaling out Ethereum at the same time right. as this ETH2 roadmap is being developed. And those things are going to converge mm -hmm. in probably a pretty sudden way. In very, very sudden right way, right? And, and as soon as people start to realize this, and you know, what, what's also going on in behind the scenes is that you know, there's, there's been the uh, depression of the ETH price based, based on the bearishness of ETH 2.0, right? That's been, that's been a thing ever since like, we started going downhill in 2018. Uh, at some point, that's going to turn around because it's not like the triple point asset thesis is like a curiosity. Like, no, there's, those are three really good reasons for why Ether price is going to go up and two of them are required by Ethereum 2.0. And as soon as all of these things get locked into, replace, uh, locked into place, I think the ether price is going to uh, do something that is sudden, not gradual. Yeah, I think you've you summed up really well in this fantastic uh, sentence. Gradually, then suddenly, the price of ETH will begin to reflect the thousands and thousands of labor hours that have been poured into Ethereum 2.0 these last three mm -hmm. years. So all of this work, it's been very gradual. It's felt very gradual, but that will all pay off in ETH price, uh, you think, when it suddenly ships and silences all of the critics who said, <laughs> Ethereum 2 isn't a thing, it'll never ship, it'll yeah. never work once mm -hmm. again. Um, looking forward to seeing that, David. Anything else on this? Yeah, and to just to continue this conversation, I think everyone should tune in to the Thursday AMA with Danny Ryan, where we exactly talked about like where all the progress is on phase uh, zero, one, and two. Danny did a fantastic uh, talk at the ETH Online 
uh, event where he kind of said, like, you know, ETH1, ETH2, this, these are kind of misnomers. It's not, they're not two different separate blockchains. One just kind of gets rolled into each other. It's actually more accurately reflected by two, two different places on the same tech stack. That's a really good talk. Uh, and so I would recommend to listen to that and then to tune into the AMA live stream with Danny Ryan on Thursday. Yeah, I do think Ethereum is going to prove to be in the next decade the most important open financial network in the world. So uh, we are here early and we're wa watching it as it emerges. It's such a privileged position to talk to some of these folks like Vitalik and Danny about its development at the time it's being developed. So tune into that. All right, guys, this has been State of Nation number 19. We talked to MetaMask and 1 million users. We talked about Q3 and the explosive uh, token appreciation and revenue that it saw. And then finally, we talked about gradually then suddenly in with respect to the ETH price. Risks and disclaimers, guys. Of course, the DeFi capital assets we talked about are risky. So is ETH. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. <laughs>